Welcome to They Live By Film, a platform dedicated to bringing you film discussion and interviews from around the world. I'm Adam Lundy, and I'm delighted to be finally back with my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, hey. long time. I'm back. <laughs> Welcome back, man. We uh, uh, didn't know what to do without you. We just started panicking and recording best <laughs> episodes. I've I've been enjoying those episodes. They've they've been they've been really good. I hope you listeners have been enjoying the the really great episodes Zach and Chris have been putting out in my absence, talking about their favorite directors and Zach talking about his collection modern slashers. It's yeah, it was fun change of pace. Um, I know going by the listens, you guys were enjoying them. So maybe we'll try and bring you some of that kind of stuff. You know, every now and again. So I could tell by the listening numbers that you guys were listening and enjoying those just as much as you do our normal episodes. That's pretty awesome. Um, this is our first proper episode back. Um, obviously, you've just had the interview, the second interview we did with Def Crocodile. Um, it was exactly 50 episodes later, which was a nice coincidence. Um, there was exactly 50 episodes between the interviews we did with those guys. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode as well. Um, but now we're back. We're back uh, with a bang. We are changing it up a little bit again. I know we only just changed the format uh, a few months ago. We are slightly changing the format again, just to kind of go a little bit more into what we changed it to originally. So you noticed in the in the intro, I didn't explicitly mention the Criterion channel, uh, and that's because we just decided to not um, to not force ourselves into that corner and force ourselves to have to choose stuff based on the Criterion Film Club, which we still do run over on on the Criterion Conversation subreddit. Um, we wanted to make this kind of as open a platform as possible for us to really talk about the films that we love. Obviously, that was a big reason why Chris and Zach were doing those episodes where they're talking about the directors they love. So we want to be able to talk about all the kind of films and genres we love and not be forced to talk about certain films and, and try and find stuff that go along with it. So we've kept our rotation where we left off. So it is, it is Chris's turn this week. Uh, Chris, do you want to give a little intro as to what we're going to be talking about today and, and the reason why you chose these films? I do. And uh, real quick, when this episode airs, it's going to be the 19th of August, which means there's 10 days left in uh, the Kickstarter that Def Crocodile is running for Solomon King. Um, and uh, the, the, the big reason, in case you're like, you know, we're we getting paid by them or something, we're not. Uh, one of the big reasons I'm drawing so much attention to this is, you know, there are certain stories in film that that I think deserve to be told. Hearing them go into the history of, of uh, Solomon, um, what Sal Watts a little bit, and just hearing like the impact he had on Oakland in that time in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Uh, it's it's amazing this guy's story hasn't been told, and they're doing a good job through this film of of, of doing it. So, a uh, good piece of history, good piece of preservation, and um, and two good guys. So, uh, go go support them if you haven't already. Okay, so there's the plug, and obviously, thanks everybody for for sticking through until um, LFA came back. Adam, it's good to see you. Um, I saw 
um, are we going to, I guess, I don't, are we, it's okay if I mention both of the names, right? We're not going to. Yeah, gonna, yeah. Well, they're going to be, they're going to be in the, in the episode description. So it's all good. Oh, perfect. Yeah, perfect. Okay, great. So I saw Caliber 9 as part of a box set that Raro Video put out. So if y'all haven't heard of Raro Video, they're an Italian company that puts, that brings Italian films to, um, to DVD and, and now obviously Blu-ray. And they have an American arm. Um, creatively titled Raro Video US. And they, um, I saw, they put out a box set of this guy that I had kind of heard of, uh, but I've never seen any of his films. A guy, a director named Fernando De Leo. And he was famous for, for uh, in his words, he created the Polizio Tecci genre. Who knows uh, if that's, that's true. People make claims all the time. But, um, he believes that he made it and his films are awesome. So I wanted to draw attention to DeLeo now for, for a while, ever since I've seen uh, the first four films in, in the box set. So The Italian Connection was one I really loved. Uh, obviously, Caliber 9 is a great film called The Boss. And uh, I just think he's awesome. He, you know, hardcore, we're, we're going to get into him in just a second. I think he's somebody that needs more attention. I think he should be mentioned as some of the, the good uh, Italian directors that are, you know, good Italian, you know, genre directors. And uh, I didn't know the natural place to bring it in until I happened to see Bullet recently. And I was like, oh yeah, here we go. So once uh, we decided to change formats, it was, it just kind of coincided with uh, a few days after I had seen Bullet, and uh, I knew I knew how to bring DeLeo into the discussion. Um, Bullet was was way cooler than I expected it to be. So we'll get into that in just a second, obviously. But uh, yeah, there we go. So there's the first two films in our in our new format, Format 3.0. <laughs> awesome. Well, we'll kick off with Bullet. Um, so for those who don't know, Bullet directed by a dude called Peter Yates, who like doesn't have like the best filmography. Me and, me and Zach were looking to see if we recognized any films. I think the only one we both recognized was The Friends of Eddie Coyle, but yeah. neither of us have actually seen it. Um, it was released in 1968. Um, it's obviously famous for its car chase. Um, but just to give you just a brief overview of the synopsis as per IMDb, uh, an all-guts, no-glory San Francisco cop becomes determined to find the underworld kingpin that killed the witness in his protection. So, yeah, it's a pretty basic overview. Um, this was my first time seeing Bullet. I know it's an iconic American film, um, but I just it's one of those ones that I had known about and I was aware of, especially because of the car chase. It's probably the most famous car chase, you know, or at least most influential yeah. in, in American cinema. So, um I, I was aware of the film because of that, but I didn't actually know anything about it. Didn't know what it was about. I knew Steve McQueen was in it, but that was about it. So I kind of went in pretty, pretty blind. Um, I thought it was fine. You know, I, 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 I wasn't offended by it. Um, I wasn't necessarily blown away by it, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Um, Zach, Chris, had you seen Bullet before? I know it's, it's an iconic American film. So I don't know if you guys had just kind of come across it just generally before. Zach, why don't you go first? I uh, actually saw the film. I didn't rewatch it for this one. I got to see it in theaters in 2018 for its 50th anniversary. Nice. Oh, nice. Which, That's cool. Yeah, which was really cool to do. Um, I'm kind of where Adam is. I, I thought then it's fine. Now, I, I, I feel a little bit better seeing in theaters just because I think it does have good cinematography. I think the editing is really good. 
the chase scene is famous and it's cool to see it on the big screen. Um, but yeah, I, I, overall, I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have time to say, but yeah, I liked it, um, for what it is. It's, uh, as far as Steve McQueen movies go, I mean, it's not great escape or anything like that. So I have a, I have a huge gap in my, in my Steve McQueen viewing. My, I, it's possible I'm wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure my only exposure to him in terms of actually seeing his films was The Blob. I'm just um, we did talk about The Blob on here. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, would, I did not think he was a great actor based strictly on The Blob. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was great here. Um, the, the world puts this as the 1,353rd best film. That's fine. I'm not offended by that. Yeah, just outside of the top 1,000. It's surrounded by Repo Man, um, a short film about love. And let's see. Anyways, so it's kind of in that in that area. Have uh, you never seen... Sorry to undercut you there. Just, I'm just looking at Steve McQueen's filmography. Have you never seen the original Magnificent Seven? Oh, good call. Yeah, there we go. Okay, fine. Okay. I was going to get worried there. Okay. Yeah, good call. Good call. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I have to change up my Pixar. We're gonna have to watch yeah. Magnificent Seven with yes. Sam. Right? <laughs> yeah. well, such a good that, film. That movie was so influential. Kurosawa remade that story, right? Yeah, yeah. I sure. think that was the order that happened. <laughs> that yeah. was the order, right? That was it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, I think they were both influenced by the Chris Pratt original, though. Um, I'm not too sure. <laughs> I think I've seen the first three of those ones. Anyways, um, but uh, yeah, I, okay. So I am a sucker for gritty 70s crime kind of films. I know this is made in the 60s, this is 68, um, but I'm a sucker for the Dirty Harry, for the French Connection, for the, the conversation. Like, um, I just, those films, I don't know if it's nostalgia or or what it is, but I I, I just think they're cool films. They're, they're in a period, you know, they talk about that first generation of, of uh, directors that came up studying film and so this is that first generation of directors that came up studying the work of people from the 20s and 30s and 40s and and and, and 50s even. So, you know, you have this, this next generation of cinema and Peter Yates is not a household name amongst some of the other guys on that list. Um, but, uh, you know, he was a solid, it feels like he was kind of a solid director. I'm surprised that when you were going through his filmography, you didn't mention Krull. <laughs> oh, I did. I did. I did mention Krill <laughs> when I was talking about to Zach. That was the first one I saw. Like, oh, he did Krill. <laughs> it's a very random jump. Uh, yeah, between totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a goofy, fun movie. But he obviously had a thing. Like he he came up through TV on The Saint and Secret Agent, and then his movies had creative titles such as Robbery, um, such as <laughs> Eyewitness. <laughs> suspect so i think you know very think, yeah. very Colombian noir <laughs> yeah totally so i think he had a, a thing um uh the, the reason why i was kind of drawn to this movie is i think it does a really good job so i i think steve mcqueen now that i've seen this and you're reminding me about magnificent seven i think he's at his best when he plays that kind of quiet uh cool sort of role that, you know, maybe Robert Redford can play a little bit when he was young as well. Peter Fonda could play it a little bit when he was young. Um, There's certain actors that can kind of pull that off. You have to be deadly handsome. And I think you also have to be a little bit grizzled and and kind of 
I, I think he has those characteristics well. Um, and beyond him, uh, again, I know it's not revolutionary, but I like the way that this movie tells the story. I like the way that things fall apart. I like the way that he starts to piece it back together. Um, and, um, you know, there's that, that trope of the pressure to, to give up the case or the pressure from the, from the police, uh, uh, the bosses of the, you know, the, the up top to, to kind of let it go. Uh, and he's dogged and he stays on it and he tries to figure it out. Um, th these are all things that work well for me. So I think I, it raised it up quite a bit when I saw it. You know, if you guys, I don't know if either of you have seen it. If you want, like, what I think is Steve McQueen's, like, best acting performance, I would really recommend uh, The Thomas Crown Affair. Oh, really? I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. Very good movie. He it, I, he played a little bit against type in that one, and I think it really pulled off for him. I just I just think he did a really good job in it. If you want to, it's probably the polar opposite of The Blob. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of it. I've, I've definitely heard of it. Well, um, yeah, I've only ever seen the the remake of that, which I did not like. But I've heard the original remake of that of, of Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, yeah, Pierce it Brosnan has one of the Bonds and like Renee. Yeah, Pierce, Pierce Brosnan, I'm pretty sure, is in it. Yeah. Oh, in the nineties. No, yeah, yeah it is Pierce. It's it is Brosnan? Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, it's Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, just looked it up. Interesting. I actually didn't know that was remade, but uh, this actually came out the same year Bullet did. Jesus, he was busy in 68. Yeah, he definitely hit his prime there. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's, there's a whole, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think he's he's good in this. So he he went from the blob to, I mean, he went pretty much straight into kind of anti-heroes or, or these more grizzled roles. He did the St. Louis Bank robbery right after that and then Magnificent Seven. So he, he seemed to know what type of film he wanted to be in or his, or his agent did. And, and it's interesting to see already, because we're going to be talking about Italian films soon, so I figure I'll get the ball rolling there. We're already kind of seeing the influence of like Clint Eastwood in the Dollars trilogy. Of course, the last one of that comes out the same year. Um, but the more anti-hero type role away from that American white hat cowboy sort of thing and you know, yeah. seeing people like Steve McQueen. I think that's really cool to see. Um, and, you know, as much as the the spaghetti Western was rejected, it's obviously pulling its fans in in the American headspace. Yeah, it comes back to what Chris is saying about this is like the band of directors that were influenced by what's come before them. Um, from an aesthetic point of view, what, what, I, what I love about this film the most is what kind of Chris had mentioned about coming into this era of kind of 70s new Hollywood, as they called it, the, you know, that sort of, as, as Chris said, the generation of filmmakers that were, went to film school or were, were heavily influenced by what came before them, you know, the likes of Robert Altman and Martin Scorsese and mm -hmm. George Lucas, Spielberg, all, the, all those kinds of guys um, who would come up in the 70s. Um, this film obviously predates it, 1968, as we said, but it has the aesthetic of a new Hollywood film. Yeah. while also having some of the sort of tropes and the storytelling of a noir. So it's, it's, it's very much a sort of like a middle ground film between the old and new, um, yeah. you know, kind of like a, the neo-noir vibe, sort of like a, you know, like a, a, a contemporary sort of version of Chinatown, perhaps, because obviously Chinatown was set in the 40s, whereas this is set in the 60s. So 
but it has it has that kind of loopy story this sort of very sort of twisty plot um that would have happened at neo-noirs but it looks and feels like a like a gritty 70s sort of crime action film like the ones you'd mentioned like dirty harry like the french connection it has that that griminess to it that a lot of 70s cinema had especially for for crime films that had that that grimy um sort of boots on the street that that kind of uh that kind of aesthetic to it so that's what i really like. I, I thought it really interesting like i didn't look at what year the film came out when i watched it so when i was watching it i just assumed it was 70s so to see that it came out before like it, it becomes immediately obvious how influential this film was um right. you know not just from the car chase which i'm sure we'll talk about because it's what everyone talks about it's probably the most famous aspect of the whole film um but just with the with the aesthetics, with the cinematography, as Zach had talked about, its score, and you know, it, it's it's all it's all so seventies, but it's it's made in sixty eight, which is what I think is really really cool about this film. Yeah, and it made forty two million. I just I'm, I'm looking this up now. When you said like a, you know, speaking of the way that Hollywood tends to copycat success, right? So it made forty two million off of a four million dollar budget. So. Obviously, I'm sure producers were, were just frothing at the mouth of how to duplicate the success of this. That's always what happens. And once one cheap thing becomes uh-huh. super successful, Hollywood churns out, you know, a million copies that happen with Halloween, it happened with paranormal activity. Yeah. It happens with horror movies a lot more than it does ever with anything else I've noticed. But it's it's just a very common thing. Once one thing is made cheap and becomes uber successful is try and replicate that because you know you might as well do it while it's while it's hot yeah and i know chris has talked about this before how many 1968 films have we done at this point like this is another Uh, one because this was like once upon a time in the west i know we talked about that and i feel like we talked about how many 68 films we've talked about yeah i think we did have this conversation before wasn't black panthers 1968 as well i think it was yeah yeah it was yeah 1968 black panthers um let's see i just typed in popular 68 movies. I don't know a quick way to do that, but. Um, but yeah. I mean, that year we had Rosemary's Baby, uh, Night of the Living Dead, 2001. I mean, 68 is a huge year. What a great year for film, you know? Yeah. I'm just looking through Planet of the Apes. Yeah, Faces, which I know y'all loved. Um, <laughs> Death by Hanging. Oh yeah, so Death by Hanging is one we oh, talked yeah. about. Coogan's Bluff, which I'm not a big fan of Coogan's Bluff, but it's there. Oh, there's your Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, yeah, that was 68. Great Silence. I, I know Adam's a big fan of the Great Silence. Yeah, it's good. It's good fun. I'm trying to see what what Bergman films were made in 1968. That was his year off. Actually, if I, was no, Shame. Shame Frank. So, oh, gosh. Shame was 1968, which is one of the best. So. 1968, yeah. great year for film, it seems. Yeah, it was like that beginning of the best decade. Yeah, exactly. Um, what did y'all think about... Um, so, do y'all... Are, are y'all a sucker for this genre of films as much as me, or are you more... I'm, I'm definitely not a sucker for this genre of films. Okay. Um, I've just never been a crime guy. I'm just... You know, I like Goodfellas. And then I can't think of any other crime films off the top of my head that I like. I'm just, I've just never really been a police crime, cat, you know, you know, cat and mouse police 
chase. I've just never been into that genre at all. You, you like police procedurals, right? Like when they're done well. Like, like yeah, the- yeah. So I do and I don't. So I like them when they are more focused on. What's the best way to put this? Neve always calls me picky when I'm with my food. I'm very picky. And I feel like I'm very picky with the genre as well. I can't really pinpoint why I do and don't like some of them. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I just, if I'm sitting down and trying to think of a, a film to watch, like police crime actioners are like the least one I'll think of. So it's, it's funny, uh, by the way, I'm picky as well. So this is not, it's just interesting, right? Because like you, you tend to like noirs, right? You're the guy we go to for noir stuff. Yeah, and, and but I defend- prefer... I prefer the noirs when it's the normal guy who gets thrown into it. I don't really care that much for the detective ones. Like, uh, I like I couldn't give a shit about the big sleep. Gotcha. Um, that's the. T- I, that's the I, I like I like the noirs when the normal guy gets gets thrown into the shit. That's the kind of noirs I like. <laughs> Zach, what about you? Um, part of me wants to say yes, but then I'm like, well, which ones do I like? And it's like I like Dirty Harry because I mean, at that point. Harry Callahan is barely a cop. Like he's basically totally the anti-hero cowboy he played just in San Francisco. I mean, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I, I like Stephen Queen's character in that because that's kind of what it is. I mean, you know, it's the strong, silent type. Though I think he's a lot less corrupt than w. Harry Callahan is. But also, Dirty Harry goes off the rails. Like it, at one point, it almost becomes a parody of the genre. It's so like. It's so intense, like, you know, as he's like, like the back half of the film when he's like running from like phone booth to phone booth and like, it it goes so crazy near the end of the movie. Well, and you know, that's like, they go through that whole thing where, you know, Dirty Harry, the whole thing with that is there's a part where, you know, he shoots the the guy who did it like several times and all this other stuff. They're like, yeah, this arrest isn't any good, dude. You can't do that. We have to let him go. And that's when, you know, the whole actual thing i think people remember start up but yeah it's kind of i I think it's that's kind of making fun of this genre film where the guy basically ignores due process at this point Uh (laughs) just goes for it so i I mean i think it's fun but it's kind of funny how quick that was parody as well in some of these films i'll I'll jump in to say i do like dirty harry as well so it's a hard one not to like it's don siegel (laughs) yeah it's a good film it's a good film um, also has a banging soundtrack yeah it does yeah soundtracks really make these right i know we're, they do we're, they have an energy they, they, they do have an energy to them like that's help. the thing like it's almost like you can take a slow moment in a picture and if you put this like driving you know like like percussive kind of beat to it all of a sudden you're super into like this moment where they're just like driving <laughs> or something you know like i'm, I'm just wondering from a timeline point of view because that, the kind of soundtracks that are in these movies, like Dirty Harry and Bullet and stuff, they're they're the soundtracks that I do associate with Italian films, with like, yeah. you know, with Jalo films and stuff like that, you know, like Argento especially. And I don't know if you know, because obviously you'll know a lot about the timelines of like these films and where they maybe overlap. But wh- where does the influence come from? Is it from the American side? Is it from the Italian side? Is it as a happy coincidence? Because they seem to be very similar in style of, in terms of how they do their soundtracks. Before Chris answers, my guess is going to be Ennio Morricone. Like, that's just going to be my yes, guess. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> actually a very good show. <laughs> but, 
but yeah. there may be a better answer. I mean, I don't know specifically about this film, and I want to be careful this doesn't sound racist, but if you look at the history of like Italian films from the 60s and 70s, one of the most common stories you hear is like producers saw blank from the US and made it like the same year sometimes or yeah. like next year. But, you know, they pulled some crazy shit like like uh, like Zombie 2 came out. But like, you know, and Zombie 1 was basically what was it? Dawn of the Dead? It's Dawn of the Dead. That, that's yeah. what they call Zombie 1. And so they just made a zombie too, because like the Italian audiences would kind of associate it with that. Um, and it's nothing to do with the first no, no. <laughs> So they pulled all sorts of shenanigans uh, with, with marketing and stuff. But I, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's so hard to tell because at the same time you have like the, the this, this stereotype as well of the Italians that are so into their craft, right? And so like, proud of their craft and like the, the art behind the filmmaking and if you hear the funniest interview i think just from a like perception versus reality thing uh remember troll 2 have you all both seen that yeah they're eating her and then they're going to eat me yeah oh my, oh my god, god. <laughs> fly walks across his face yeah. that director has no sense of humor about troll 2 like he <laughs> And like he, in his mind, he's making this beautiful thing and any humor that came out of it is just, it must be because of the translation or something, you know? <laughs> um, what a hill to die on. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> um, but he was a, you know, he wrote, like the funny thing is he, he came out of this machine that was making, you know, yeah, Claudio Fragasso, this is the guy's name. Um, and he, he was a writer that was, he wrote uh, alongside some of the best Italian directors um and he had a brief career directing and so anyways i'm getting you know way off here but my my point is uh i think it's that same thing where you know kurosawa was influenced by uh, uh american story that he saw to create rashomon and to create um was it seven samurai too anyways kurosawa was influenced by so many of john ford movies and so many american stories and then people started copying him. At some point, it just gets muddled up and it all gets... It's all symbiotic, the... isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I don't know exactly for the crime genre, but the crime genre has been around almost as long as there's been films, right? In some, some yeah. form. That's true. Well, it's like we, you know, you hear this all the time where you see in a lot of reviews where people are like, well, it just ripped off this. I'm like, yeah, about every film has ripped off every other film at this point. So what difference does it make anymore? Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a famous quote. It's like everything is a copy of a copy of a copy. So totally. it's always it's always going to be that way. Yeah. And I'm sure the same is true for music, because, I, you know, this is a massive blind spot for me. But the people that grew up on like the classical sort of composers probably just did a riff on that for their for the film scores. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, Pro probably. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess, uh, before we leave this one, I guess we'd be remiss not to talk about the uh, most famous scene in the movie, right? The car chase. chases. Yeah, yes. car, chase. <laughs> car chases. Um, yeah, it's, it's a cool car chase, of course. I don't really know what Well edited. I, I, think, <laughs> I think Bullet won Best Editing in, at the Oscars for that. I'm going to double check. I'm surprised it, considering how, like, um, just how different it was. 
Yeah, for it won for best film editing, and it was also nominated for best sound. Oh, that's cool. The, cool, the only thing cool that I saw in the cinema that I'll never like be able to unsee is there's a part where the car is going down like the San Francisco Hills and it hits this white car on the side and you can see it edited out. Yeah, that, that, that's that, on that, cinema. That, like, oh my God. <laughs> I noticed that as well. It just like suddenly just disappears in the frame. It's like, what? <laughs> that really threw me off. It should not have won for editing. That's such a basic <laughs> editing error. <laughs> um, that, that really everything else that is fine i just I was, I, was, I was like did that car just disappear <laughs> yeah and I'm glad I, was, I thought i was i was streaming it on a on, on apple tv and i thought jesus did that really jitter that much that was a really weird <laughs> that was a really weird glitch <laughs> yeah i so. yeah i think the car chase is fine something about the car chase and the french connection for me like i don't know if it's because early exposure to it I don't think anything beats that for me in terms of 70s like car chases yeah like i don't i don't think that we can say that bullet is the best car chase ever it's definitely the most influential though. yeah yeah, yeah I, I don't think like with it with what you know 50 odd years of cinema has come after it i can't i don't really think we can say like even like as much as we like the shit on michael bay like even like car chase in the rock is probably better and that was as influenced as bullet as it could possibly be considering it's also in san francisco so it's one of those things where i could imagine like an interview with george miller where he says yeah i love bullet and i'm like that's why i made mad max and i'm like okay yeah that makes sense <laughs> yeah you know in 50, yeah i don't think we can sit here and say bullet is the best car chase but i think we can sit here and say it's the most influential car chase well, Here's kind of a random game. So it looks like I, I was just going through the, the awards thing on Wikipedia, and then the next thing down was Legacy. So it looks like Spielberg is going to be directing a film that's on the Frank Bullet character. Um, looks like it's in script phase right now. Who's who's playing Bullet oh, today? And please don't say Timothy Chalamet. Ryan Gosling, surely. Yeah, I'm sitting here trying to think. Who's the guy who played him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? He had such a small part, but that's he looked sort of like him. Oh, yeah, that's probably the right answer. I think they could do that. Well, right? they probably don't have him cast if it's only in the scripting phase. Yeah. Apparently, it's being executively produced by his son. So. His son played in a horror movie I watched recently. That was random, but I was just kind of amazed. Damian Lewis is who played him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And now that I'm he's looking a, at a picture of him, I'm like, he doesn't really actor. look like him. Yeah. He's a good he's actor. He's a band of brothers. I remember him in that. Yeah, he's he's a good actor. But I suppose just, it, are they looking to actually just like, like, does it have to be someone who looks like Steve McQueen or are they just doing a that, That's true. I, I, I guess it's just kind of like a, yeah. Because I guess to be I fair to Damian Lewis, that. Like, he looks like Steve McQueen, and he's also a good actor, so I suppose that helps. Um, yeah. There's no point in picking someone who just looks like the person, but they're not actually that good of an actor, so. Yeah, I guess that'd be like um, getting Scott Eastwood to play his dad. I, I don't know how well that would go if they made a movie on Clint Eastwood. Right. People will, people will keep asking for it. Until someone gives Scott Eastwood a big role <laughs> and they see him act, they will just continue to ask for it. So sometimes you He played in a movie with Jason Statham a couple years ago called wrath of man and he was actually really good in that because like that charming thing he tries to do the character is basically a psychopath and i'm like it actually works for him because <laughs> it feels so fake 
Like it feels like this fake charm and I'm like, it works. Accidentally good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, it's fun. I missed, I missed you guys. That was fun. Uh, we have to do this more often. <laughs> I like, I love, I love talking movies with y'all. Um, one of the other recurring segments we have that we're, that, that made the cut we're keeping is uh, collection corner. Uh, we're still, we're still buying. So, um, I, I'm going to take this in a slightly different route. So I just finished all of Wong Kar Wai's films. Uh, just finished The Grandmaster. So I'm putting together my the next kind of director that I'm going to do. And I realized that I have already pretty much all of the uh, Kislovsky movies through a variety of box sets that I've collected over the years. Um, so I went on IMDb to check out sort of his filmography. And he made, he's made a ton of documentaries and a ton of like TV movies, like way more than I expected. Um, I forget the actual count of his feature films that were theatrically released, but it's only like 10 or 11 or 12. It's not, it's not that many, but he has 43 credits. And a lot of them are TV movies or docs or shorts. And it just so happens that a lot of the releases that the Criterion's put out or Arrow's put out, they have a lot of the short films on there. And so there was only two big gaps uh, as I was going through kind of what I had and what I needed. Just, you know, I, I realized that this is the first director that I might actually be able to see everything because a lot of times they don't put out director short films or, or, it's, or it's kind of hard to track them down or whatever. But because Kislovsky is so loved in Europe, when they had the really like heyday of DVD, there was some really niche DVDs they were put out. So I'm waiting on one to come in, which is uh, his documentaries. And it has, uh, does, it, does it say quickly on here how many? It has, uh, this is a two DVD set that has almost all of his documentaries. So if you, I mean, I won't go through the list, but yeah, it has at least 10. Uh, and then there's another one from Arrow Academy that I got in, which is the Decalogue plus his TV movies. So it's got five or six TV movies. And so between all of these kind of random, you know, like if you look at Double Life of Veronique, it has, you know, uh, three, short, three short documentaries as part of the special feature. So, you know, if you go through all of his releases, it, it's, it's actually, you only have to end up buying eight things to get all of his films. Um, and so do you have you have the cinema conflict set, right? I do, and I'm so glad I have it because it's extremely expensive to buy now. Oh, is it? Fuck, I better sell mine. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, really I have the original, the original sort of. Yeah, I think you have the same one when they first released. Yeah, this was never released in the U.S., so this was only the region B. Ah, nice. Okay, uh, and I'm sure it's just a right issue, but. Um, yeah, Arrow did a good job of releasing his like more obscure stuff. So they have this one, which has his early films, plus a bunch of shorts. Uh, and then the other one they put out, which is the Decalogue plus his TV movies. Um, anyways, yeah. So I will be, as soon as those come in, um, one of them is any day now. One of them is probably in early uh, September. But whenever those come in, I'm going to jump into Kieslowski now. And there's 43 things I'm going to watch. And I think, but mo some of them are like three minutes long. So it's not like it's, you know, 43 features. But then I think I'm only having to watch four things on YouTube. It's pretty much comprehensive outside of that. So 
So that's my, what about, what about y'all? Um, well, I haven't bought anything, so I'm just going to shout out two things that's coming out that I'm looking forward to. Um, first, all hail Criterion for releasing uh, one of the greatest films of all time, Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot wait for that to come out so that you guys can watch it and then we can talk about it. Because But it was an Inland Empire, so it's terrible. No, fuck Inland Empire. Lost <laughs> Highway, way better. Uh-huh. Only hipsters like Inland Empire. Um no, I, I'm, just, I'm really excited to have it on Blu-ray. I have my old DVD copy that I've had for years as part of a David Lynch DVD box set the Studio Canal put out years ago. So I'm really happy to t- getting a Blu-ray. I'm glad that Lynch was directly involved. So I know we're getting a really, you know, we're getting a good representation of his vision for it. Um, and I'm even happier that Criterion are putting it out in Region B as well. So I don't have to import it because that is a pain in the ass. So um, I'm very, very thankful that I'll be having that in October. When yeah. it releases in the US as well. There's no delay, which is great. Um, the other thing I'm really looking forward to, which I know a lot of people, I'm especially you, Chris, looking forward to it. Uh, Arrow have just announced, um, I think it was leaked, so they kind of had to announce it. Uh, Shaw Scope Volume 2 yeah. uh, is going to be coming out later this year, I think in November, if I remember correctly. Um, like Volume 1, just full of old Shaw Brothers movies, the Hong Kong Kung Fu, primarily Kung Fu studio. Um, the one uh, there's a bunch of films on here I've never heard of which was the same on the first Shaw Brothers set and I still haven't finished that one but I've I, I did enjoy the majority of the ones that I did watch so I will be making my way through this one but the very first one on the list is a film I've wanted to see for a long 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 time which is the 36th Chamber of Shaolin yeah. um, funnily enough the I think I think the last episode we recorded together was for was for ghost dog right that was yeah. the last one oh, we recorded wow. yeah. for yeah. and obviously the rizza from the wu-tang clan did the soundtrack for that and 36 chamber of shaolin is very influential on wu-tang clan's music you know their their you know their their first album their influential album is called enter the wu-tang 36 chambers so um so then I, i'm gonna i'm gonna watch that one dubbed so i could try and hear the pieces that um that he sampled um, on that album. But uh, awesome. yeah, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to the set in general, but I'm especially looking forward to seeing the 36th Chamber of Shaolin because it's just not available in Region B. I don't know if it's the same in Region A, but it's just, you just can't watch it. It just doesn't exist in a, in a format here. So uh, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that when it eventually comes out. I swear it had a DVD release, but maybe I'm crazy. Um, maybe it did once upon a time. It's certainly not available now anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to finally being able to see it. Uh, it just it sounds cool as hell as well. I've, I've sort of I've read I know what it's about, so it, it sounds like a it sounds like a cool film. What well, um, for the last one, I'm kind of in a similar boat to Adam. I haven't bought a whole lot recently, but October is going to murder me. Um, so I go over one. I'm I've pre-ordered uh, already here because I have a compulsion for Halloween. Just anything that comes out. Stream Factory has decided to continue what they were doing before. They stopped uh, their 4K sets at number five. So now we're getting um, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, Halloween H2O, and Halloween Resurrection. The holy trilogy of amazing movies in that set. (laughs) And uh, and the problem was I only owned those movies once. So Scream Factory has decided I need to own two copies of that movie now. And make that box that I have about as worthless as possible because now uh, that'll put all everything in 4K 
except for Rob Zombie's Halloween films, which I'm sure they'll get to if Lionsgate lets them. This is great news for me because hopefully it will reduce the value of those original box set. And I it, it already it. has. It really has. Perfect. Like I think I saw them for like two fifty, and I'm like, that's a far cry from the eight hundred it used to be regularly. Right. Um, and I mean, the only thing that you can't get, I mean, the only thing they haven't redone now is the Rob Zombie Halloween films, which those were never complete because he ne- they don't have the theatrical versions in them. He doesn't like the theatrical versions. They wouldn't allow them on the Scream Factory complete set, which I'm sure sucked for them. But, you know, I ordered from Canada because I really hate the the director's cut of his Halloween. I hate both of his Halloweens anyway, but I hate that one a little bit more. Um, So, yeah, yeah, there's my compulsion. And then October is going to have a new indicator box sets coming out from a director I've never heard of. So I'm going to buy it because I don't know why. (laughs) Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is getting a 4K. it, but from vinegar syndrome in october so i'm just gonna be broke i guess oh that indicator one that was from the the, the one with the really cool cover wasn't it michael j powell yeah, michael, michael j murphy and there's something murphy. Out here. yeah that, that, that box art is sick yeah i have never heard of this guy i can't recognize a single movie on there so i'm gonna buy it oh it just looks like cheap as crap yeah exploitation horror films uh, so right up your alley yeah. <laughs> i'll start picking actually, things from that in october yeah i just realized actually it's not an episode of of collection corner if i don't talk about a noir set um indicator announced universal noir obviously i've talked about every version of columbia noir um but they've also announced universal noir so they've obviously ran out of columbia films that they can license mm-hmm. um so now they're on to universal noir which is also a set of films i've never heard of but i'll probably end up buying that anyway I mean, you got to complete the collection. Yeah, that's to be done. That's the only like, aesthetic. No, they've, they've definitely run out of Columbia films because if you look at the um, the spine number, they just go on directly from the Columbia set. There's no gap. Oh, well, there we go. Yep, that, that pretty much confirms it then. Yeah. Because yeah. we know as we have an inside track on how Indicator do their spine numbers. If you want to <laughs> know, listen to our Indicator interview. And if you know how Arrow does theirs, please let us know because I still haven't figured it out. It's because oh they God. don't. They just don't have spine numbers. Oh, that's they're right. Just, yeah. They're it's... just like, they're just serial, basically like serial numbers. They're just like randomly assigned, which is why, I'm sorry for going off track here. This is something that I, I listened to on a different podcast before and I always found it interesting. And um, as to why there's no easy way to track Arrow's releases, no way like Criterion has like a Wikipedia page that has all the Criterion releases. Arrow doesn't have a version of that because they don't have spine numbers because Wikipedia can't be used as a basically an inventory system. If something doesn't have spine, the criterion get away with it because they have spine numbers collection, whereas Arrow are not allowed to list everything they've released because that technically counts as inventory because it's not spined. So if you're ever wondering why there isn't an Arrow equivalent of the Wikipedia page for every criterion release, it's because they don't find numbers, so Wikipedia takes it down because you're, you can't just create a Wikipedia page for inventory purposes, basically. Okay, so, sorry, I, I can't believe I have a chance to talk about this. So, my obsessive personality, when I first got into Arrow, I went through weekly release dates from them, dating back all the way, to, from at least for their U.S. Uh, releases. And I tried to piece together a release uh system for them like a like a spine system from them because i wanted to know 
what that complete list was. They make it to, to release 143, and then 144 has never been released. No idea why. 145 has been released. And then from there, or if it has been released, I should say there's no way to track it down. There's no digital like footprint of this release. So from there, uh, in the first, I, I went all the way up to release 300, and then I just gave up because there was already like 30 spy numbers that were just a gap. And that's when I realized that like they do not think of these releases the way that I do. Because <laughs> like, you know, they have a release that came out this year uh, that was, you know, 200 something. And well, uh, it's got to be kind of like BFI and targets, right? Like there's just random shit they have to put on hold or they have to cancel and it gets to keep that number. But until it releases, it never comes out. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking it is. Yeah, like they had plans and then it got scrapped for some reason or another. Yeah, that's um, because targets I'm still disappointed about. Yeah, I know. Hopefully it comes back. Yeah, that was that sucked. Um, so I only found out by accident because I was like, I'm sure targets are supposed to be out by now. Like, I want to try and buy it. And I just couldn't find like, I couldn't find anything about it even existing. I was like, what the fuck? I didn't dream this. Um, I knew this was being released. And yeah, hopefully they sort out whatever rights issues going on there. From um, my understanding, I can't remember who made the film. I, I, want to, I have a feeling. Peter it's Bogdanovich. Oh, sorry, well, I just meant like studio, the, the company. I can't remember who owns it, but they are supposed to be doing the 4K master. And from my understanding, they're not really returning to BFI's emails. Okay. <laughs> and we, need so to get someone like, from, we don't know when it's going to be done we need to get someone from bfi on and ask them i think that's yeah because be, that's what i've heard at least that's, that's what the blu-ray forums are running on about so that's I'll how we've got people. that's how we've gotten on most of our questions answered you know yeah. that's how we got our ishtar questions answered even though we couldn't release them we know privately about ishtar and um, we know we, we need to we need to learn we need to find out we need to grill someone who works for bfi to find out what happened to target that's like, hey, we just want to advertise your uh, your new 4K stuff. Please let us know. Fire yeah. targets. I think it was Anthony, right, that said he has a lot of connections over there. I'll just I'll reach out to him and see if we can't make that. That'd be cool. The listeners, future, you may have a BFI episode if we work out. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? I like I like BFI. I have a good few of their releases. Yeah, so yeah, that'd be, yeah. That'd be nice. I think they do good stuff. Um, sure. We'll move on to our second film. Um which Chris obviously mentioned earlier, is... Wait, what am I doing this? Zach, introduce the next film. I thought I was going to get away with not mispronouncing something. No, not at all. All right, for our second film, we're going to be talking about Milano Calibro 9, or Calibro 9. I had to at least mess up something by Fernando (laughs) DeLeo. Just out of prison, ex-con Ugo... Ugo meets his former employer, a psychopathic gangster, Rocco, who enjoys a sick violence and torture. Both the gangsters and the police believe Ugo has hidden $300,000 that should have gone to an American drug syndicate boss. Chris, where where is the numbers at for this one, if they are there? Oh, no, no. I want to hear y'all's gut reaction first, and then, then we'll, we'll come back. I okay. To, yeah. Just a quick question, just before we get into it. Um, the ver- I, I had to stream this on Prime, and it was dubbed. Is this suppo- Was it supposed to be dubbed, or was that a problem? I, I always watch these movies subtitled, but it doesn't really matter because a lot of times 
they'll get actors from all over the world and that's what i was thinking yeah, yeah. like a, a lot of them that looked like they were talking in english and obviously just dubbed over them with actual americans so i just wanted to make see if that was a problem or not that was the only version i had available was the dubbed version so the dub version is on youtube so that's how i watch it nice okay okay well just just knee, knee jerk reaction what do y'all think i liked it uh actually i liked it better than bullet um it's yeah. oh, I'm trying to think like it's it, it doesn't feel quite as polished as bullet does but i like it better in the sense that i kind of like that grittiness to it like it feels a little bit has a little bit more grip than bullet does yeah, yeah i'm the same with zach uh, i probably liked it about the same as bullet but this is a bit like zach's a bit grittier a bit more unpolished which i think gives it a bit more character um you know it's definitely more in line with um you know, with, with Jalo, you know, that kind of style, which we all know, and with it being sort of early 70s, even though, you know, it's different genre, they stylistically are not too dissimilar in terms of how it's filmed and the acting performances and the the colors and stuff. But um, yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, you, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't fall in love with the plot. There was times during the plot, and like, I don't really remember what's happening. Uh, but Film. <laughs> yeah it was decently directed um soundtrack was good barbara boucher's hot yeah <laughs> yeah the main character looks like jason statham's dad that's who i thought of the whole time i was like they made an american remake this would be totally. I, was, I, was think, I was i was thinking italian david harbour that's uh, works. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah caliber nine is a film <laughs> it's definitely one of the films of all time <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh I'll, I'll make this quick um but here's my here's my uh quick background on delio so the world views this as eleven thousand and eighty-seven, um which possibly is his highest ranking he's not really like a name that's on the tip of the tongue for a lot of people um, and I feel like that's a that's a crime. I, I feel like he's at least on par with a lot of the Italian directors. Um, he was a you what? Oh, he was a writer for Fistful of Dollars, and then uh, an uncredited writer. I don't know exactly what that means, but he claims to have invented the spaghetti western genre. <laughs> So I'll take his word for it. <laughs> there, it's funny as an interview with him, he's not shy to make big claims. Like you can tell he's a self-promoter. Um, so he was a co-writer on Fistful of Dollars. And then I don't know, did y'all have either one of y'all seen the Ringo movies, A Pistol for Ringo, or Return of Ringo? No. I've seen the first one. Okay, cool. Spaghetti Western flicks. Uh, he, he was a writer on those. Then he was a uncredited writer on a few dollars more. And then Django, so Johnny Yuma, so big, like he was pretty, like he was deep and in, deeply involved in um, Spaghetti Westerns and then uh, started directing and uh, started uh, with a few random ones I haven't seen. I think there might even be like kind of erotic films and then Caliber 9. So then he hit the ground with Caliber 9. That was like the first one that kind of wasn't called Asylum Erotica or Naked Violence, that kind of thing. Um, and he, like, 
just sort of took Italy by storm. So Caliber 9, and then the next one is Italian Connection, then The Boss. Um, uh, one of his other ones that's, that's a little famous, a chance you all have heard of it, is called Shoot First, Die Later. Mm-hmm. But he, so in his words, he then created the Polizio Tecci genre as well. <laughs> he just cre- I'm surprised he Very doesn't go back and say, I created Jello. I told Bob I had to do it. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, just created, created, created horror. Like, you might as well, you know. <laughs> um, I, I like... I'm drawn to bombastic personalities that are like dead set on making their vision and sort of see it through. Um, and so I'm a sucker for movies like Caliber 9. Like, I think it is him making a movie that he sort of saw it pieces of somewhere else, right? Like it has so many elements of, of crime films from like, uh, from, from America. Um, throughout history and yet it's definitely fully Italian as well um right and I think I I like the character of Ugo Piazza um the Jason Statham's dad I think he's a cool like I think he does a good job of like being on screen and I think he kind of owns that role well he's quiet he shouldn't be cool like some he's kind of like like the first few minutes I feel like he's almost like awkward in his own skin or something but then I kind of like the way the film uses him. And then I, one of my like secret actors that I love anytime he's on screen is Mario Adorf, who's the, the guy Rocco, the, the guy who he's like, you know, beefing with the whole time. Um, he looks like a cartoon character. It just, he has these like big goofy facial expressions and it's hard to take him seriously, but I, I love him. He was a big, he, he had a big role in, um, either the Italian connection or the boss. I can't remember. He was one of the leads in that. But anyways, I, he just has, I, I just think he's like a, a great big goofball. Uh, and, uh, but in all the ways that are good. <laughs> uh, and he was even in some spaghetti Westerns too, I think. I'm just going to double check that really fast, but I, I'm pretty sure he was in um, some of the Leone Westerns as well. Um, let's see if I can... Oh, well, I can't find it quickly. It's not, not important. But uh, I swear he was in. Uh, okay, well, yeah, I'm not finding it quickly. But he, re- he reminded me of, um, of I can't remember the character's name, but the ugly in The Good, and the Bad, and the Ugly. He reminded Eli me of Wallach? Him. Yes. No, not Eli. Yes, Eli Wallach, yeah. Yeah. He reminded Tuco. me of Eli Wallach a little bit. Tuco. Yeah. That was the character's name, Tugo. Yeah, Tugo, Eli Wallach, the actor. Yeah, he reminded me a little bit of him. Just in his sort of, you know, with the mustache and, and everything like that, they just, um, yeah, I don't know. He just had the same kind of. He just literally like looked like the same dude. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if you guys see that as well, but yeah, he reminded me a lot of of, of Tugo. Budget, budget, Eli Wallach. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to ask Chris, you're a little bit more familiar with this genre than I am, and I think Adam, you mentioned before we started, you this was kind of your first one too. Um, a couple years later, we're going to get investigation of a, uh, of a citizen above suspicion, which we did an episode on mm-hmm. forever ago. Uh, I guess it's been over a year now. Mm-hmm. That seems to be kind of a parody of sorts of this genre, which seems really early. But I didn't know if that was if I'm just making that connection and that's not really there and it's not supposed to be. But oh, good question. I don't know if it's a parody. I would find it more to be just kind of like 
using using it as a platform for mm-hmm. a philosophical postmodern discussion, if that makes sense. As I don't think it outright like when we say like when we call something a parody, like we're we're taking tropes and we're turning them on their head or we're using them for comedic purposes. Right. I, I don't think investigation does that. I think investigation uses a police procedural as a way of talking about something more philosophical. Mm-hmm. If that makes okay. sense. Um, but I, 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 can, I, I definitely see where you're coming from, though. I think, I think that does definitely use the police Utechi genre as its platform to kind of talk about its larger teams. If that makes sense. So I do definitely see what that's probably that's we're making the same point really. Um, so I definitely see where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting because I think that came out in like 1970 and this guy supposedly invented it like around this time. So it's like, we're getting early here. Yeah. Okay. Like there were some aspects that even reminded me of um, of La Samurai. Obviously, La Samurai is way more polished and pristine. Um, but just in terms of how the plot unfolds, I suppose, reminds me a bit of, of, of La Samurai. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. These Especially films- since the whole thing is like whether, because the whole thing, I guess, in Samurai is for the cops, whether or not he did it, whether or not he's the actual guy, like that's who they think yeah. he is. He was the assassin. And this one's whether or not this guy stole the $300,000. Exactly. And, and like in the Samurai, he's kind of caught between the cops and the bosses and the same in this where he's caught between the cops and the bosses. These films are also kind of, I don't know if incestuous is the right word, but like there's there's a finite amount of people that are involved in all these projects, right? Like the lead, the lead for investigation of a citizen was John Maria Valente, who was uh, in A Fistful of Dollars. He plays the villain in uh, Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more. Yeah, exactly. And also he was in A Bullet for the General, which is a cool movie. Um, so, yeah, like this, the, you know, they all knew each other and, and kind of worked together. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, one, I'm almost curious to say, well, this is just getting into like speculation, but, you know, I wonder if one of the reasons he's an uncredited writer on, uh, if we're talking about the Leo now, if he's an uncredited writer on some of these uh, Leone films is just because they're all kind of, you know, in the studio together, just like pitching ideas and writing and kind of helping each other out. Like, I, I wouldn't be- Or, you know, like, hey, you know this producer, come in there with me and help me pitch this idea and they'll, I'll give you credit for it, that kind of thing. No, totally, yeah. So I, I would say that would be true more than being like parodies necessarily. I, I also don't get the impression, like, the, if you look at the comedies that were coming out in Italy at that time, they, they were like they're, they're like big slapsticky type comedies, you know. Like there wasn't a ton of stuff coming out theatrically that would have been like a parody or a satire or something. Um, I'm sure an Italian historian is going to tell me I'm wrong, but at least from what I've seen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was just trying to see if the writer, the director of investigation, was was also involved in this world, but he, it's not as obvious a connection. So anyways, but I'm like sure it, they all know each other. It does seem to have been like a big melting pot. It's like, you know, when we watched Once Upon a Time in the in the West and I saw Dario Argento's name, I was like, what the hell? 
Why is he showing up? <laughs> yeah, it, it does really seem to be that way with Italian films in this kind of era where everyone just kind of had a finger in each other's pot. Um, people were helping each other. It seems like it seems like just Sergio Leone was just like being a pal to every young filmmaker that was coming through. Yeah, he's like, here, come help me with this, and it will give you a platform. He was just kind of just giving people a leg up, kind of like the uh, the the uh, Roger Corman. Yeah, you know, of, Ital- of Italian cinema, just sort of giving these guys work, and then them getting a leg up. Then through that, if that makes sense. Well, I was about to, that's a good call out. I was also going to say it's kind of old Hollywood in a way, right? Like it wasn't like you just came out of film school in like the '30s and got that. You know, hey, you worked as a DP for me. Let me uh, help you out and get you this started. Let me, you know, you were a good key grip. Let me get you another job here, a um, little bit more than it is now. I think just just to back up everything we're saying, nothing makes the point better than composer of this movie, Luis Bakalov. So look, 1964, he was the composer for Pasolini's Gospel According to St. Matthew. And then he's the composer for Django in 66, Bullet for the General, 67. Uh, and, and by the way, there's like five movies in between everything that I'm mentioning that I just don't know. Um, then you get into, I mean, yeah, like there's 20 movies between that and Caliber 9 and 72. And so then he starts working with DeLeo a lot. But here's this dude who is, you know, everybody always talks about Morricone, rightfully so. And then after that, probably Nina Rota, right? The guy from, that worked so closely with Fellini. But then here's a guy that was quietly just the composer for like most of what was coming out in Italy at that time. Uh, and we don't even talk about Luis Bacalov um, really in the same in the same way, you know. I, I, I'm sorry, just just to go so, completely sidetrack for a second. I was just looking through um, Barbara Boucher's filmography. Um, I, I really like Barbara Boucher. Um, I brought it up when we talked about Red Queen Kill Seven Times. It's probably one of my favorite Shala movies and she's the lead in that. She's awesome. And I was just looking through her filmography because I knew she worked in Hollywood a little bit. And I was just kind of scrolling up because she's still alive. She's still making movies. She made a movie in 2020. I was going to bring Cali- this up. Called Calibro 9. What the fuck? It's a and sequel. Plays the same- I was going to bring this up. Yeah. And she plays it's- the same character. Like It's, it's, it's actually, a it's a sequel? sequel. Yeah, it's, it's a direct a- sequel. Okay. I thought it was a remake. And like, how is she playing the same character like 40 years later in a, in a remake? Okay. It's a sequel. That's no, so interesting. Really. Yeah, I saw it like when I was going through the Wikipedia page, I was like, and then there was a direct sequel called Calibro 9. I was like, in 2020, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, I guess the Arrow release came out a few years before that, so it probably got a little popularity, but like, <laughs> but you said Raro did it as well. I don't know when Raro put theirs out. Wait, did Arrow Video put this out? I think I that this was it. like one of their old window box sets back in the day. Oh, okay. Oh, for real? This remake, so. or this sequel looks awful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the reviews weren't great. This looks terrible. <laughs> God damn it, Barbara. I shouldn't have signed up for this. Yeah, I was looking at hers a few minutes ago. I was like, oh, she was in, like, Don't Torture Duck Lane and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, I know her. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's great. Good. Have I you seen so. The Red Queen Kills Seven Times? Though? I have. I love that movie. That's so good. Yeah, it's really good. She's awesome in that. She's a very beautiful woman. 
And Gangs of New York, good for her. <laughs> got to work with Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah, I was just I'm just looking at this old DVD now. So I didn't realize Arrow had put out this is like it must be an old release from them. Um that could be misremembering, but I thought that they had done a release. No, 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 I have it here. I'm oh, you do. Okay. You're, you're right. Yeah. Um, that's just interesting. I had no idea. Um there's even a region free release. This must be from I don't I can't quickly see when it came out. This is not good, uh, good podcasting, anyways. Here, but <laughs> I'm sorry for just completely derailing. I just, I just could not believe that they. I thought it was a remake. Obviously, now I know it's a sequel, but I still think that's absolutely crazy. It, it's an interesting <laughs> one. Like somebody saying, "You know what? I really want to make a sequel to this 1972 police procedural from Italy." <laughs> that probably barely anyone even knows about. Like I don't even know if this is like a, considered like an iconic film. I don't know. Obviously, we're not Italian, so maybe this is like a really sort of good cultmate fil- film that Italians would have watched growing up, you know, or something. But uh, I thought that was wild. It's Sorry the creator of spaghetti things. westerns and Poliziotti films, so he's a name that should be more. Uh, <laughs> Every household says his name. Um, yeah, I always like find like I remember when I first discovered this guy named Umberto Lenzi. I remember just being like, wow, he made some really bad shit movies. I love this guy. And like Claudio Fregasso, we were talking about earlier, you know, he made some movies that were just off the wall. I like, I like discovering, I, I don't know what it is about Italian movies. I, I, I like the copycat aspect of a lot of what they were doing at that time. It's like, you know, there, there's a crazy movie called, I think it's called Contamination, where it's like aliens, but but make it for, you know, half a million dollars and make it your own. Uh, and there's this goofy, like sort of physical, like uh, like a monster in a suit almost at the end. It's like this big goofy looking like monster in a suit. Um, I, there's something about this that I've always loved. And DeLeo, I, I don't want to say I like his movies because they're funny. I really do enjoy them, but it, the, the campiness of them certainly plays into why I like it so much. There's, you know, it's uh, it's like, it's like a near Hollywood production or something, you know, it's like, it's not quite there in terms of uh, quality of, of, of like from a technical perspective, quality of release, quality of film, these kind of things. But um, I just, I don't know. I love it. I'm really glad y'all got to see it. Yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it too. This is my first one. So I'll be kind of curious to uh, go a little bit further in it. Cause I mean, I'm used to, you know, when it comes to Italian films, Jallo and spaghetti westerns, but this has always kind of been a little bit of a blind spot for me. The Italian Connection is the one I would recommend. If anybody wants to watch, give anything else from him a chance, the Italian Connection is kind of the one that me is is the best from, from that first uh, lot that I saw. Yeah, I'd be curious to give another one that go. Like I said, I, did, I didn't hate it or anything like that, um, but I wasn't floored by it, but I would be, um, I would be, curious to watch to watch another one all right well i really want to thank chris for bringing us like really cool like crime uh films very different so i'm gonna kind of follow suit in my double feature um and you know it's funny we we talked about getting away from the criterion stuff well one of mine is a criterion release uh right. it's going to be valerie and her week of wonders from 1970 it's a shekel are they just check now? I can't remember. It's changed yeah. so often. I can't just remember. Just check yeah. now. Yeah. Just yeah. Check. 
Um, which is <laughs> Adam says he's not going to rewatch it because he doesn't think he's going to get any more out of it. <laughs> but uh, it's yeah. a it's a very fascinating movie. Um, and the other one I'm pairing with it is The Company of Wolves, which is an '84 film by Neil Jordan. Um, they both take ideas of um, almost a fairy tale aspect to like werewolves and vampires and stuff. So I thought they'd be fun to pair together. But uh, so if you want to listen, watch those before we talk about them in a couple weeks, there they are. Awesome. That's good. Finally, finally doing an Irish director. <laughs> yes. Uh, Neil Jordan. He's probably, our, he's probably our most famous, to be fair. Um, perfect. So yeah, Valerie and Week of Wonders. Uh, yeah, I'm probably not going to rewatch it. <laughs> uh, but I, I am looking forward to the Neil Jordan one. I was actually, I don't even think I've ever seen any Neil Jordan film, which sounds weird as an Irish person. Would have, oh no, that's a lie. I've seen Interview with a Vampire and I've seen Michael Collins. So yeah, that's a lie. Yeah, I was like, I thought you'd seen Interview with Louise. Yeah, no, I have. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I'll be interested to see this one. Um, it looks it looks fun. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll close off now what we usually do um, with any other business. Just want to just talk about something that we've seen recently that we just want to give a quick shout out to. Um, my one's going to be pretty brief because um, I just haven't watched a ton lately with me being so busy. Um, there's two films that are out currently on streaming um, that are that I, I, I quite enjoyed. Uh, the first one is Prey, uh, which is the new Predator prequel film. Uh-huh. Um, Best Predator films since 1987. Um, Agreed. Really, really great film. I think more horror franchises should take this, take a page out of this book and just drop random aliens and monsters into random time periods. Like, let's watch Samurai fight Xenomorphs, uh, that kind of shit. I just think they did a really good job making this film. It's a great action film. Uh, story was good. The lead actress is very good. Just a really, just all around good horror action it's just a good predator movie and it's been a while since we've been able to say that so um i got into a, a slight argument with one of my a, a friend of mine is he was like no no alien versus predator is better and i was like it's not really a predator movie though it's kind of like it's kind of like the way freddy versus jason isn't really a jason movie um it doesn't it's just not this it's not it's not really a, a true predator movie it is the best true predator movie since the since the original uh, in my opinion and then another film um, that I saw on Paramount Plus here, I don't know, I think it's on Hulu in America, um, is Honor Society, which is a like a teen sort of high school kind of comedy with, um, I, can, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Anjuri Rice, Anjuri Rice. Um, she's a good sort of young, up-and-coming actress. And one of the dudes from Stranger Things, uh, Gaten Matsurazo. Um, it's just, it's good um sort of high school drama comedy but like it's it's a smart film it's well made has a really good script um i kind of put it in a similar sort of school of like you know super bad or book smart or you know it's it has a good script it's it's well written it's well put together um has an engaging story has a good plot so if you're just looking for like a, a tight 90 film that's easy to watch but it's also actually like pretty well done uh, honor society uh, i thought thought it was really enjoyable that's it well, that poster's so goofy but I'll, I'll it's very point. like it's it's very um it's very shit what's the dude's name um who did the breakfast club john hughes it's very john hughes and it does have that influence 
Um, okay. It's sort of John Hughes and then like Clueless, super bad. It just it sort of just follows that every few years they release good high school movies. Yeah. Uh, this is this is like the one good high school movie that pe- that we'll get now for the next few years. Okay. Um, so if you're just looking for something that's a tight ninety um, and has a has you know it's well written and you know it's it's very self aware. It's not sort of it doesn't it's not like sort of made for kids. It does have some sort of off the cuff jokes. Um, especially around the school counselor potentially being a pedophile, um, ironically played by the guy who played McLovin in Superbad. Um, so yeah, it's it's a good film. Uh, if you're look if you're just looking for something easy to watch, I would recommend it. I think I thought it was good. Okay. So yeah, Prey and Honor Society. Um, those are the two films I watched last week that I thought were deserved a shout out. Nice. Um, I can go next. Um, so the only one I really want to shout out, I do want to just mention, I watched Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last night. Went to the theater to see that. I'll have a review up hopefully today. But that movie was a lot of fun. Uh, very interesting for modern slashers. So if you want to hear me drone and drone and drone on, I just did a podcast talking about some modern slashers coming up, and that was one of them. But really what I wanted to highlight this week is one of my favorite directors is uh, Sam Peckinpah. Mm -hmm. And one I have a very big blind spot for of Walter Hill is the movie Extreme Prejudice, which has always kind of been his take on a Sam Peckinpah film because the movie is essentially the wild bunch. Um, It's just like there's these almost like two storylines going on of this cop played by Nick Nolte going up against this drug guy played by Powers Booth. Great cast, just great cast all around. It's got Michael Ironside. It's got Clancy Brown, Rip Torn. Uh, basically every character actor that was big. Old white guys, the movie. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like it was every character actor at the time. So, um, but at the same time, there's these, um, basically these ex-military guys who were the government faked as being dead so they could do Suicide Squad-esque missions um essentially uh and they're in the same city and they're kind of intersecting very slowly it's very much a take on the wild bunch in a lot of ways like the the violence is very sam peck and paw there's slow motion in it but just a really fun film i was always nervous because i i just didn't think it would live up to that i like walter hill not that much but i i do like walter hill um this was probably one of the better ones he has it, it's very much a modern western um so that's my shout out nice yeah i'm just looking at it now it looks cool it has Vestron video did the release most recently they just put it out who did yes Vestron. ah that's why i've seen it yeah 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 okay so in the last week um i've seen some some good movies i uh so i'm just gonna run through them really quick and then i'll talk about one so I rewatched A Clockwork Orange for the first time in at least 15 years. Um, I'm, I'm on another Miyake kick. I saw Dead or Alive. I saw the second Anaconda movie. <laughs> um, uh, Enter the Dragon and then just finished The Exorcist. Um, there's, there's a reason I, I, I saw all of those, which I won't bore y'all with, but I have kind of a system of, I try to mix it up on purpose so I'm never watching something that's the same. Um, but, um, so I I just want to talk about A Clockwork Orange briefly, and I know that's not super exciting, because, like, who hasn't seen A Clockwork Orange? But if you haven't seen it, 
go see that movie. Like, okay, so I, I remember some of the shocking elements from it, from when I had seen it before, but I didn't realize, I think what makes that movie have such a strong legacy is that the whole thing is done with these bright colors and almost like this cheery outlook, you know, Malcolm McDowell is so amazing in that role. And he's so, like, if he's any less positive or any more kind of cynical in the way that he plays that character, it becomes almost like comically dark. But the, that balance of the way that he plays that role, the bright colors that are on screen, the kind of bright music almost, and then what's happening on the screen, I think is where that movie is, it, it works so well. It's almost like that balance is, is, was was so, it had to be perfect for that film to work. And he just got it perfect. Um, even for the goofy things, like the language that they use, it could be, it could easily fall into like satire or, or a bad comedy if it's in the wrong hands, like an unintentional comedy, I should say, not satire, if it's in the wrong hands, because it could be too goofy. But wow, that movie was great. I, I just like, I was like, I was sitting up just, you know, at attention for the last, uh, you know, I don't know, hour of it or hour and a half of it. if there's a if there's a scene that sums up that film in terms of the line you're talking about between goofiness and, and horrifying it's the scene where they attack the woman while singing singing in the rain yeah that's that's like the scene that best sums up the tone of that movie um and <laughs> i i don't know if you know the backstory behind that scene about how stanley Kubrick had to go get the rights to that because he wanted to keep it in that was ad-libbed the fact that they were singing singing in the rain Oh, and um, Malcolm McDowell ad lived it, and Kubrick loved it so much. She's like, "Go get the rights for that song," because um, I want to use that. Um, so that wasn't planned. That was that was something that Malcolm McDowell had just done. Um, great actor. Um, second yeah. best Samuel Loomis. Um, I agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um, but yeah. are you counting Sam Loomis oh, from Psycho shit. in that no, too, or is he third? No, he's third best. I just I was literally <laughs> to say no. He's actually the third best Sam Lewis. Uh, actually, is he the fourth best Sam Lewis after the fifth Scream movie? Isn't that character? Oh yes, Sam I Lewis forgot too. <laughs> yes. um, so maybe maybe he's the fourth best Sam Lewis. Uh, were, but I'm sure when Hitchcock, when the guy who wrote Psycho wrote the name Sam Lewis, he never thought it would be in about eight hundred. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't. Um, it's been so long since I've seen Clockwork Orange um, because of its violence and stuff I just it's not one I'm keen to revisit but um, I, I watched it a lot you know when I first got into film um, it was sort of one of the one of the it was a staple of my I've talked about my DVD collection I had as a teenager and mm-hmm. Clockwork Orange was uh, a staple of that um, so I've seen it a good few times but it's been a long time it's probably been about 10 years for me since I've seen it I just want to note, Chris, my girlfriend's going to be real upset you didn't talk about Anaconda, The Hunt for the Blood Orchid. Wait, so just as a side, that movie's not bad. Like, yeah, she loves it. I haven't seen it since it came out in like 2004. But yeah, she loves that movie. Like, it's definitely better than the first. And Are, is it? Like, I think so. Because, okay, so like. It doesn't have John Boyd like chewing scenery really badly. Like, that makes Anaconda one. Yeah. Okay. That, that's it's like John Boyd's hilarious in that role. It's, he's so goofy in that role. Um, but like, you know, they have the idea of anaconda, and then they add ten more snakes. <laughs> it's like so, Jaws had like ten more sharks. Yeah. 
It's like um, when they did their market research after the first one came out. It was like, what are the people most like about this movie? The snakes. Okay. That's not that one. amazing CGI snake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> actually, the effects are worse than Blood Orchid because you know, there's like, I don't know if it's all CGI, but there's a, there's a scene in Anaconda where the snake like pops up and you see the inside of his mouth and it looked pretty cool. Um, but the, the CGI in, in Blood Orchid is worse. So there's two more in the series. I think the half Hasselhoff is in either the third or the fourth one, so I'm I'm about to go into. I think the next two were direct. They're they're surely direct to DVD. <laughs> the I've second seen one the first direct two. to DVD. Yeah, oh, was it? I've seen that one as well. I've seen. I guess it's been so long since I've seen them, but I've definitely seen both <laughs> of the first. I've seen the first two. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't recommend Hunt for the Blood Orchid, but <laughs> if if you're in the movie to see, uh, if you're in the mood to see a movie about big snakes, I, it's certainly uh, in the top two of, of the ones I've seen so far. <laughs> Big praise. 